11. E 17 year old Perchit with bangs, who strums a mandolin in the little front parlor, gay with its paper flowers, 6 plush covered chairs and a company sofa. The late Commodore Vanderbilt is reported to have said, I have over a dozen sons, and not one is word of the dam. I fear me that every father with sons grown to manhood has at some time voiced the same sentiment, curtailed, possibly, only as to numbers, and softened by another expletive, which does not mitigate the anguish of his cry, as he sees the dreams he had for his baby boys fade away into a mist of agonizing tears, and is all this worry the penalty that nature exacts for dreaming dreams that cannot in their very nature come true? Jean Jacques Rousseau, who wrote so beautifully on child study, avoided the risk of failure by putting his children into an asylum, several, communities, since have set apart certain women to be mothers to all, and bring up and care for the young, and strangely, with no apparent loss to the children, and Bellamy prophesies a day when the worries of parenthood will all be transferred to a, committee, but the worry is futile and senseless, being born often of a blindness that will not wait, man has not only, seven ages, but many more, and he must pass through this one before the next arrives, the Commodore certainly possessed what is called horse sense, and if his conceptions of character had been clearer, he might have realized that in more ways than one the abilities of his sons were going to be greater than his own, his eldest son was, nevertheless, banished to a Long Island farm on a pension, because he could not be trusted to do business, the same son once modestly asked the Commodore if he would allow him to have the compost that had been for a year accumulating outside the Fifth Avenue barns. Just one load, and no more, said Pater. William thereupon took twenty teams and as many men, and transferred the entire pile to a barge moored in the river. It was a barge load, and when Pater saw what had been done, he said, The boy is not so big a fool as I thought. The boy was forty-five ere death put him in possession of the gold that the father no longer had use for, there being no pockets in a shroud, and he then showed that as a financier he could have given his father points, for in a few years he doubled the millions and drove horses faster without a break than his father had ever ridden. Seward's father was a doctor, justice of the peace, merchant, and the general first citizen of the village of Florida, Orange County, New York and he had no more confidence in his boy William than Vanderbilt had in his. He educated him only because the lad was not strong enough to work, and it seems to have been the firm belief that the boy would come to no good end. In order to discipline him, the father put the youngster in college on such a scanty allowance that the lad was obliged to run away and go to teaching school in order to be free from financial humiliation. Here was the best possible proof that the young man had the germs of excellence in him. But the father took it as a proof of depravity, and sent warning letters to the young school teacher's friends threatening them not to harbor the scapegrace. The years went by and the parental distrust slackened very little. The boy was slim and slender and his hair was tow-colored and his head too big for his body. He had gotten a goodly smattering of education some way and was intent on being a lawyer. He seemed to know that if he was to succeed he must get well away from the parent nest, and out of the reach of daily advice. His desire was to go out west, and the particular objective point was Auburn, New York. The father gave him $50 as a starter, with the final word, I expect you'll be back all too soon. And so young Seward started away, with high hopes and a firm determination that he would agreeably disappoint his parents by not going back. He reached Albany by steamboat, 
and embarked on a sumptuous canal packet that bore a waving banner on which word are the words woven in gold, westward, oh, and he has slyly told us how, as he stepped aboard that inland palace, he bethought him of having written a thesis, three years before, proving that due with Clinton's chimera of joining the Hudson and Lake Erie was an idea both fictile and fibrous, but the inland palace carried him safely and surely, he reached Auburn, and instead of writing home for more money, returned that which he had borrowed, the father, who was a pretty good man in every way, quite beyond the average in intellect, lived to see his son in the United States Senate, and the moral for parents is, don't worry about your children, you were young once, even if you have forgotten the fact, boys will be boys and girls will be girls but not forever, have patience, and remember that this present brood is not the first generation that has been brought forth, there have been others, and each has been very much like the one that passed before, the sentiment of Pippa passes, holds, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, in 1834, Seward was the Whig candidate for governor of New York, he was defeated by W.L. Marcy, four years later he was again a candidate against Marcy and defeated him by 10,000 majority, Seward was then 36 years of age, and was counted one of the very first among the lawyers of the state, and in accepting the office of governor he made decided financial sacrifices. Seward was a man of positive ideas, and, although not arbitrary in manner, yet had a silken strength of will that made great rents in the mesh of other men's desires. Before a court, his quiet but firm persistence along a certain line often dictated the verdict. The faculty of grasping a point firmly and securely was his in a marked measure and any man who can quietly override the wishes and ambitions of other men is first well feared, and then thoroughly hated. One of Seward's first efforts on becoming governor was to ensure a common school education among the children of every class, and especially among the foreign population of large cities. To this end he advocated a distribution of public funds among all schools established with that object, and if he were alive today it is quite needless to say he would not belong to the APA nor to any other secret society. He knew too much of all religions to have complete faith in any, yet his appreciation of the fact that the Catholics minister to the needs of a class that no other denomination reaches or can control was outspoken and plain. This, with his connection with the anti-Masonic party, brought upon his name a stigma that was at last to defeat him for the presidency. Seward's clear insight into practical things, backed by the quiet working energy of his nature, brought about many changes, and the changes he effected and the reforms he inaugurated must ever rank his name high among statesmen. By his influence the law's delay in the courts of chancery was curtailed, and this prepared the way for radical changes in the Constitution. He inaugurated the geological survey that led to making Potsdam outcrop, classic, and Medina sandstone, a product that is so known wherever a man goes forth in the fields of earth carrying a geologist's hammer. Largely through his efforts, a safe and general banking system was brought about, and the establishment of a lunatic asylum was one of the best items to his credit during that first term as governor. But there was one philological change that proved too great even for his generalship. The word, lunacy, as we know, comes from, luna, the belief in the good old days being that the moon exercised a profound influence on the wits of sundry people. I'm told that the idea still holds good in certain quarters, and that if the wind is east and the moon shows a horn on which you can hang a flat iron, certain persons are looked upon askance and the children caution to avoid them. 
Seward said that insane people were simply those who were mentally ill, and that hospital was the proper term. But the classicists retorted, Nay, nay, William Henry, you have had your way in many things and here we will now have ours. It has taken us full a century officially to make the change, and the plain folks from the hills still refuse to ratify it, and will for many illustrum. It was during Seward's administration that the debtor's prison was done away with, and it was, too, through his earnest recommendation that the last trace of law for slaveholding was wiped from the statute books of the state of New York. The question of slavery was taken up most exhaustively in what was known as the Virginia Controversy. This interesting correspondence can be seen in a stout volume in most public libraries. It is a series of letters that passed between Governor Seward of New York and the Governor of Virginia, as to the requisition of two persons in New York charged by the Governor of Virginia with abducting slaves. Seward made the patent point, and backed it up with a forest of reasons in politest English, that the accused persons being charged with abducting slaves, and there being no such thing as slaves known in New York, no person in New York could be apprehended for stealing slaves for slaves were or things that had no existence. Then did the governor of Virginia admit that slaves could not be abducted in New York, but he proceeded to explain in lusty tomes that slavery legally existed in Virginia, and that if slaves were abducted in Virginia, the criminal nature of the act could not be shaken off because the accused changed his geographical base. Seward was a prince of logicians, the subtleties of reasoning and the smoke of rhetoric were to his fancy, and although there is not a visible smile in the whole Virginia controversy, I cannot but think that his sleeves were puffed with laughter as he searched the universe for reasons to satisfy the haughty first families of Virginia, and all the while, please note that he held the alleged abductor safe and secure against harm's way. In this correspondence he placed himself on record as an abolitionist of the abolitionists, and the name of Seward became listed then and there for vengeance or immortality. The subject had been forced upon him, and he then expressed the sentiment that he continued to voice until 1865, that America could not exist half free and half slave. It must be a land of slaveholders and slaves, or a land of free men he was fully and irrevocably committed to the cause. In 1840, he was re-elected governor. The second administration was marked, as was the first, by a vigorous policy of pushing forward public improvements. At the close of his second term Seward found his personal affairs in rather an unsettled condition, the expenses of official position having exceeded his income. He had had a goodly taste of the ingratitude of republics, and philosopher though he was, he was yet too young to know that his experience in well-doing was not unique. A fact he came to comprehend full well, in later years, and so he did that very human thing declared his intention of retiring permanently from public life. Once back at Auburn, clients flocked to him, and he took his pick of business, and yet we find that public affairs were in his mind, vexed questions of state policy were brought to him to decide, and journeys were made to Ohio and Michigan in the interests of men charged with slave stealing. There was little money in such practice and small honors, but his heart was in the work. In 1844, Seward entered with much zest into the canvas in behalf of Henry Clay for president, as he thought Clay's election would surely lead the way to general emancipation. In 1848, he supported General Taylor with equal energy. When Taylor was elected, there proved to be a great deal of opposition to him among the members from the South in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, 
the administration felt the need of being backed by strong men in the Senate men who could think on their feet, and carry a point when necessary against the opposition that sought to confuse and embarrass the friends of the administration with tireless windmill elocution. From Washington came the urgent request that Seward should be sent to the United States Senate. In 1849, he was chosen senator and from the first became the trusted leader of the administration party. The year after Seward's election to the Senate, President Taylor died and Vice President Fillmore who had the happiness to live in the village of East Aurora, New York succeeded to the office, but Seward still remained leader of the anti-slavery party. Seward's second term as United States Senator closed in 1861. In 1855, when his first term expired, there was a very strenuous effort made against his re-election. His strong and continued anti-slavery position had caused him to be thoroughly hated both north and south. He was spoken of as a seditious agitator and a dangerous man, but in spite of opposition he was again sent back to Washington. Small, slim, gentle, modest and low-voiced. He was pointed out in Pennsylvania Avenue as one who reads much and sees quite through the deeds of men. Men who are well-traduced and hotly denounced are usually pretty good quality. No better encomium is needed than the detraction of some people, and men who are well hated also have friends who love them well. Thus does the law of compensation ever live. In 1856, there was a goodly little demonstration in favor of Seward for president, but the idea of running such a radical for the chief office of the people was quickly downed, and Seward himself knew the temper of the times too well to take the matter very seriously. But the years between 1856 and 1860 were years of agitation and earnest thought, and the idea that slavery was merely a local question was getting both depolarized and dehorned. The non-slave-holding North was rubbing its sleepy eyes, and asking, Who is this man Seward? Anyway, the belief was growing that Seward, Garrison, Sumner and Phillips were something more than self-seeking agitators, and many declared them true patriots. In every town and city, in every northern state, political clubs sprang into being and their battle cry was, Seward. It seemed to be a foregone conclusion that Seward would be the next president. When the convention met, the first ballot showed 173 votes for Seward and 102 for Lincoln. The rest, scattering. But Seward's friends had marshaled their entire strength all the rest was opposition while Lincoln was an unknown quantity. When the news went forth that Lincoln was nominated. Seward received the tidings in his library at Auburn, and the myth-makers have told us that he cried aloud, and that the carved lions on his gateposts shed salty tears, but Seward knew the opposition to his name, and was of too stern a moral fiber to fix his heart upon the result of a wire-pulling convention. The motto of his life had been, be prepared for the unexpected. It may be that the lions on the gateposts shed tears, and it is possible there was weeping in the Seward household but not by Seward. He entered upon a hardy and vigorous campaign in support of Lincoln making a tour through the West and being greeted everywhere with an enthusiasm that rivaled that shown for the candidate. Seward said to his wife, when the news came that Lincoln was nominated, he will be elected, but he will have to face the greatest difficulties and carry the greatest burdens that ever a man has been called to bear. He will need me, but look you, my dear, I will not serve under him, I must be at the head or nowhere. Lincoln knew Seward, and Seward didn't knew Lincoln, and so after the convention Lincoln journeyed down east. It took two days to go from Chicago to Buffalo, 
and there were no sleeping cars, and then Lincoln went on from Buffalo to Auburn another day's journey. Lincoln wore his habitual duster and the tall hat, a little the word is for wear. He telegraphed Seward he was coming, and, of course, Seward met him at the station in Auburn. Lincoln got off the car alone, and attended, carrying his carpet bag, homemade, with the initials A.L. embroidered on the side by the fair hands of Fanny and Rebecca Todd. Seward and his two sons William and Frederick met the coming president, and the boys laughed at the dusty, and goof, sad and awkward individual, six feet five, who disembarked. The carriage was waiting, but Lincoln refused to ride, saying, Boys, let's walk. And so they walked up the hill, in through past the stone gateposts where the lions stood that shed tears. Seward ran ahead into the house and said to his wife, Look you, my dear, we have misjudged this man. Do not laugh. He is the greatest man in the world. Three months later, Seward met Lincoln by appointment in Chicago, and from that time on, to the day of Lincoln's death, Seward served his chief with hands and feet, with eyes and ears, and with brain and soul. When Lincoln was elected, his wisdom was at once manifest in securing Seward as Secretary of State. The record of those troublous times and the masterly way in which Seward served his country are too vivid in the minds of men to need reviewing here. But the regard of Lincoln for this man, who so well complimented his own needs, is worthy of our remembrance. Seward was the only member of Lincoln's first cabinet who stood by him straight through and entered the second, early in April, 1865. Seward met with a serious accident by being thrown from his carriage and dashed against the curbstone. One arm and both jaws were fractured, and besides he was badly bruised in other parts of his body. On April 14th, Lincoln returned from his trip to Richmond, where he had had an interview with Grant. That evening he walked over from the White House to Seward's residence. The stricken man was totally unable to converse, but Lincoln, sitting on the edge of the bed and holding the old man's thin hands, told in solemn, serious monotone of the ending of the war, of what he had seen and heard of the plans he had made for sending soldiers home and providing for an army whipped and vanquished, and of what was best to do to bind up a nation's wounds. Five years before, these men had stood before the world as rivals, then they joined hands as friends, and during the four years of strife and blood had met each day and advised and counseled concerning every great detail. Their opinions often differed widely, but there was always frank expression and, in the main, their fears and doubts and hopes had all been won, but now at last the smoke had cleared away, and they had won. The victory had been too dearly bought for proud boast or vain exultation, but victory still it was, and as the strong and homely Lincoln told the tale the stricken man could answer back only by pressure of a hand. At last the presence of the nurse told Lincoln it was time to go, in grave jest he half apologized for his long stay and told of a man in Sangamon County who used to say there is no medicine like good news, and rumor has it that he then stooped and kissed the sick man's cheek, and then he went his way. The next night at the same hour a man entered the Seward home, saying that he had been sent with messages by the doctor, being refused admittance to the sick chamber. He drew a pistol and endeavored to shoot Seward's son who guarded the door, but being foiled in this he crushed the young man's skull with the heavy weapon and springing over his body dashed at the emaciated figure of Seward with a plifted dagger. A dozen times he struck at the face and throat and breast of the almost dying man, and then thinking he had done his work made rapidly away. At the same time, linked by fate in a sort of poetic justice, 
with the thought that if one deserved death so did the other. Hate had which Sherrame sent an assassin's bullet home and Lincoln died. Weeks passed and the strong vitality that had served Seward in such good stead did not forsake him. Men of his stamp are hard to kill. On a beautiful May day, Seward, so reduced that a woman carried him, was taken out on the veranda of his house and watched that solid mass of glittering steel and faded blue that moved through Pennsylvania Avenue in triumphal march. Sherman with head uncovered rode down to Seward's home, saluted, and then back to join his goodly company, and many others of lesser note did the same. Health and strength came slowly back, and happy was the day when he was carried to the office of Secretary of State and, propped in his chair, again began his work. Another president had come. But neat it was that the Secretary of State should still hold his place. Seward lived full eleven years after that, seemingly dragging with unquenched spirit that slashed and broken form. But the glint did not fade from his eye, nor did the proud head lose its poise. He died in his office among his books and papers, sane and sensible up to the very moment when his spirit took its flight. Abraham Lincoln the world will little note, nor long remember, what we say here. But it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Speech at Gettysburg Bombardieri. I do not think my childhood differed much from that of other good healthy country youngsters. I've heard folks say that childhood has its sorrows and all that, but the sorrows of country children do not last long. The young rustic goes out and tells his troubles to the birds and flowers, and the flowers not in recognition. And the robin that sings from the top of a tall poplar tree when the sun goes down says plainly it has sorrows of its own and understands. I feel a pity for all those folks who were born in a big city, and thus got cheated out of their childhood. Zealous ash box inspectors in guilt braid, prying policemen with clubs, and signs reading, keep off the grass, are woeful things to greet the gaze of little souls fresh from God. Last summer six fresh airs were sent out to my farm. From the 8th Ward, half an hour after their arrival, one of them, a little girl five years old, who had constituted herself mother of the party, came rushing into the house exclaiming, Say, Mr. Jimmy Driscoll he's walking on the grass. I well remember the first keep off the grass sign I ever saw. It was in a printed book, it wasn't exactly a sign, only a picture of a sign. And the single excuse I could think of for such a notice was that the field was full of bumblebee nests, and the owner, being a good man and kind, did not want barefoot boys to add bee stings to stone bruises, and I never now see one of those signs but that I glance at my feet to make sure that I have shoes on. Given the liberty of the country, the child is very near to nature's heart, he is brother to the tree and calls all the dumb, growing things by name. He is sublimely superstitious. His imagination, as yet untouched by disillusion, makes good all that earth lacks, and habited in a healthy body the soul sings and soars. In childhood, magic and mystery lie close around us. The world in which we live is a panorama of constantly unfolding delights. Our faith in the unknown is limitless, and the words of Job, uttered in mankind's early morning, 
in our wandering mood, he stretcheth out the north over empty space, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. I am old, dearie, very old. In my childhood much of the state of Illinois was a prairie, where wild grass waved and bowed before the breeze, like the tide of a summer sea. I remember when relatives rode miles and miles in springless farm wagons to visit cousins, taking the whole family and staying two nights and a day, when books were things to be read, when the beaver and the buffalo were not extinct, when wild pigeons came in clouds that shadowed the sun, when steamboats ran on the Sangamon, when Bishop Simpson preached, when home was a place, not a theory, and heaven a locality whose fortunate inhabitants had no work to do, when Chicago newspapers were ten cents each, when cotton cloth was fifty cents a yard, and my shirt was made from a flour sack, with the legend, extra XXX, across my proud bosom, and just below the words in flaming red, warranted fifty pounds, the mornings usually open with smothered protests against getting up, for country folks then were extremists in the matter of early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise, we hadn't much wealth, nor were we very wise, but we had health to burn. But aside from the unpleasantness of early morning, the day was full of possibilities of curious things to be found in the barn and under spreading gooseberry bushes, or if it rained, the garret was an Alsatia unexplored. The evolution of the individual mirrors the evolution of the race. In the morning of the world man was innocent and free, but when self-consciousness crept in and he possessed himself of that disturbing motto, Know thyself. He took a fall. Yet knowledge usually comes to us with a shock. Just as the mixture crystallizes when the chemist gives the jar a tap. We grow by throes. I well remember the day when I was put out of my Eden. My father and mother had gone away in the one-horse wagon. Taking the baby with them. Leaving me in care of my elder sister. It was a stormy day and the air was full of fog and mist. It did not rain very much. Only in gusts. But great leaden clouds chased each other angrily across the sky. It was very quiet there in the little house on the prairie. Except when the wind came and shook the windows and rattled at the doors. The morning seemed to drag and wouldn't pass. Just out of contrariness, and I wanted it to go fast because in the afternoon my sister was to take me somewhere. But where I did not know. But that we should go somewhere was promised again and again. As the day wore on we went up into the little garret and strained our eyes across the stretching prairie to see if someone was coming. There had been much rain, for on the prairie there was always too much rain or else too little. It was either a drought or flood. Dark swarms of wild ducks were in all the ponds, V-shaped flocks of geese and brants screamed overhead, and down in the slough cranes danced a solemn minuet. Again and again we looked for the coming something, and I began to cry, fearing we had been left there forgotten of fate. At last we went out by the barn and, with much goosting, I climbed to the top of the haystack and my sister followed, and still we watched. There they come, exclaimed my sister. There they come, I echoed, and clapped to red, chapped hands for joy. Away across the prairie, miles and miles away, was a winding string of wagons, a dozen perhaps, one right behind another. We watched until we could make out our own white horse, Bob and then we slid down the hickory pole that leaned against the stack, and made our way across the spongy saw to the burying ground that stood on an old half a mile away. We got there before the procession, and saw a great hole, with square corners, dug in the ground. It was half full of water, and a man in bare feet, with trousers rolled to his knees, was working industriously to bail it out. 
the wagons drove up and stopped, and out of one of them four men lifted a long box and set it down beside the hole where the man still nailed and dipped. The box was opened and in it was S.I. Johnson. S.I. lay very still, and his face was very blue, and his clothes were very black, save for his shirt, which was very white, and his hands were folded across his breast, just so, and held awkwardly in the stiff fingers was a little New Testament. We all looked at the blue face, and the women cried softly. The men took off their hats while the preacher prayed, and then we sang, There'll be no more parting there. The lid of the box was nailed down. Lines were taken from the harness of one of the teams standing by and were placed around the long box, and it was lowered with a splash into the hole. Then several men seized spades and the clubs fell with clatter and echo. The men shoveled very hard, filling up the hole, and when it was full and heaped up, they patted it all over with the backs of their spades. Everybody remained until this was done, and then we got into the wagons and drove away. Nearly a dozen of the folks came over to our house for dinner, including the preacher, and they all talked of the man who was dead and how he came to die. Only two days before, this man, S.I. Johnson, stood in the doorway of his house and looked out at the falling rain. It had rained for three days, so that they could not plow, and S.I. was angry. Besides this, his two brothers had enlisted and gone away to the war and left him all the work to do. He did not go to war because he was a copperhead, and as he stood there in the doorway looking at the rain, he took a chew of tobacco, and then he swore a terrible oath, and ere the swear words had escaped from his lips, there came a blinding flash of lightning, and the man fell all in a heap like a sack of oats, and he was dead, whether he died because he was a copperhead, or because he took a chew of tobacco, or because he swore, I could not exactly understand. I waited for a convenient lull in the conversation and asked the preacher why the man died, and he patted me on the head and told me it was the vengeance of God, and that he hoped I would grow up and be a good man and never chew tobacco nor swear. The preacher is alive now. He is an old, old man with long, white whiskers, and I never see him but that I am tempted to ask for the exact truth as to why S.I. Johnson was struck by lightning. Yet I suppose it was because he was a copperhead. All copperheads chewed tobacco and swore, and that his fate was merited no one but the living copperheads in that community doubted. That was an eventful day to me. Like men whose hair turns from black to gray in a night, I had left babyhood behind at a bound, and the problems of the world were upon me, clamoring for solution. There was war in the land. When it began I did not know, but that it was something terrible I could guess.